welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor of LARB. Today we have an interview with Lynn Comella, Associate Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Las Vegas, and author of the new book, Vibrator Nation, How Feminist Sex Toy Stores Change the Business of Pleasure. I'll be joined in that conversation by Sarah Mesley, the Senior Humanities Editor at LARB, who'll be filling in for Medea Ocher, our Managing Editor and my usual co-host, who is deep in the trenches producing our quarterly journal. We look forward to that and to this show. We are positively vibrating with excitement today to speak with Lynn Camella. Lynn Camella is an associate professor of gender and sexuality studies in the Department of Interdisciplinary Gender and Ethnic Studies at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Her scholarship and research covers a broad scope of sociological themes, including the relationship between sexual politics and consumer culture, with a particular emphasis on the historical development of the women's market for sex toys and pornography. Her work has appeared in publications including the International Journal of Communication, Porn Studies, Feminist Media Studies, The Feminist Porn Book, and New Sociologies of Sex Work. In 2015, she was the recipient of the Nevada Regents Rising Researcher Award in recognition of early career accomplishments. Her new book, Vibrator Nation, How Feminist Sex Toy Stores Changed the Business of Pleasure, was published by Duke University Press in September. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Can you just start off by explaining to us a little bit about what you are trying to do with this book? Because it's obviously, as we can tell from the title, it's about how feminist sex toy stores change the business of pleasure. But can you talk about the feminist angle of that history? Yeah, sure. I mean, it is, I think, I'm biased, of course, a really fascinating history of, you know, how feminist sex toy stores kind of came to be and how over the past four decades, they've really helped to change the larger adult entertainment industry and the business of pleasure. So what I wanted to do in this book, it initially started way back when, actually, as a project for a graduate seminar that I was taking at the time. So I've been working on this project for many, many years, and it's developed and evolved alongside changes in the larger adult industry. But it initially started because I was very much interested in questions of sexuality and public culture, particularly those places in our culture where women can go and assume an unapologetic public presence around their sexuality. And it occurred to me that there were these women-friendly, feminist-identified sex toy stores such as Good Vibrations and Babeland that had really come out of this impulse to kind of create a different kind of sex shop, one that treated, you know, women as sexual subjects, not objects, as kind of, you know, agents of their own sexual lives and scripts, and really led with providing accurate sexual information and not simply just selling products and commodities. So I wanted to know more about these businesses and their history. You know, when did they emerge? Why did they emerge? What kinds of larger cultural and commercial interventions were they attempting to do by kind of carving out space in this marketplace that historically hasn't always been, 
you know, really hospitable or welcoming to women as either entrepreneurs or as consumers. So those are some of the initial things I wanted to do, the kind of who, what, and why. And then the project just continued to grow over the years. Yeah. So speaking of those, the who in particular, the two stories that kind of anchor the entire book are the stories about Del Williams and Joni Blank right? Who are mm-hmm. two women and they're kind of at the center of this history. Can you tell us a little yes. bit about who those women were and why they're so vital to the kind of, I guess you would say, movement that you're chronicling historically in this book? Yeah. And thank you for calling it a movement because I, I don't think we often think of commercial entities as being kind of leading forces in cultural or political movements. But mm-hmm. I try to make the case in this book that we can look at these businesses in that way. So as you point out, there are kind of two really fascinating figures that emerge early on in the story that really do kind of anchor this history. And so I'll talk about them separately. Um, the first one is Del Williams. And Del Williams started Eve's Garden in 1974 in New York City. And Del Williams at the time was in her early 50s. And she had kind of this late in life political awakening in the early 1970s when she encountered the feminist movement. And at the time, um, she was part of a segment of the women's movement that really started to take questions of female sexuality and female sexual liberation quite seriously. And she was friends with Betty Dodson, who by that time had written a kind of pamphlet booklet called Liberating Masturbation. And there were emerging discussions in some corners of the women's movement about the importance of women owning their own orgasms, taking control of their sexual lives and pleasure. And women were being told, you know, vibrators can help you with that. And women were responding saying, well, that's great. I love that idea. Where in the world am I supposed to get one? So I want to flesh out this exciting moment because some of the timing is a little bit interesting in my mind. So you're saying that this is happening in the mid-70s, which... In the early 70s. Early yeah, 70s. Early 70s. Mm-hmm. Right. So can you situate that for us against some of the other famous the sort of the rise of some figures like Andrea Dworkin or Catherine McClintock, that moment that was, I won't exactly say anti-sex, but certainly had a different relationship to expressions of sexuality. And I think those figures are people that somebody have heard of. So how do they fit in this story? Are they allies? Are they enemies? I mean, that's a really, really good question. So to kind of provide the historic backdrop a little bit. So certainly by, you know, the late 1960s, early 1970s, there was a growing commercial industry around sexuality in the U.S. And we saw that in kind of liberalization of sanity laws and sex laws and the kind of emergence of hardcore pornography in public movie theaters, for example. So 1973 was when Deep Throat was released to lots of buzz, right? So if we think about 1973 as that moment that ushered in what historians have referred to as porno chic. Mm. Now, it certainly drew greater attention to the proliferation of the adult industry and the sex industry. It would be a few more years 
in the United States until there was an organized anti-feminist porn movement. There were certainly pushback to films such as Deep Throat, and there was mm -hmm. growing concern about sexist representations and violent representations in media, but it didn't really gain steam, actually, until the late 1970s in the U.S., when you, right. you know, had groups such as Women Against Pornography mm -hmm. in New York. Right. So, interestingly enough, I mean, there wasn't kind of any organized anti-vibrator movement, for <laughs> lack of a better phrase, that emerged to kind of push back against some of these early entrepreneurs, such as Del Williams and, you know, Joni Blank, who founded Good Vibrations a few years later. These women were kind of working on the cultural margins, and they were very much kind of thinking about vibrators as tools of liberation. That you should also point mm -hmm. out that vibrators didn't even really exist in quite the way that we understand them now. That's one of the other interesting well, histories that you track. They Well, they were undercover. They massagers or like, you right. know, nervous relaxers or that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, they were positioned culturally very, very different. And you certainly could find advertisements in women's magazines. I recently came across, I think it was an advertisement from a Red Book magazine in the early 1970s. And there's this young woman with, you know, her hair parted down the middle and her long hair falling beneath her shoulders. It looks like a high school yearbook picture. And she's holding this kind of slim line vibrator against her cheek. Mm -hmm. And the text is all about, you know, kind of vitality and health. And so it's like there a Virginia were, Slims ad. <laughs> exactly, but with a vibrator in her hand. So there were certainly by the late 60s and 70s, you could find ads like that in women's magazines, mm. but mostly it would be in the back of, you know, men's magazines or swingers magazines, little classified ads for sexual aids. So that's interesting aid. because that the language of that Red Book ad, the vitality, that really goes back even to a turn of the century history of vibrators in medical use, right? That Rachel Maines charts in her earlier yes. book about the history of vibrators, the technology of orgasm. So it, there's right. an interesting leap between that moment of like, it's for health you know, be vital to like, yeah, it feels good. Let's liberate ourselves. Right. And I think you're exactly right. It was a very, very interesting moment where all sorts of things were coming out of the closet, mm -hmm. right? Like public discussions <laughs> right. of female masturbation. Feminists were writing about the politics of the female orgasm. And vibrators, really, the meaning around them was being recast in some very, very interesting ways that, you know, they were kind of coming out of their closet as not just sexual devices, although they certainly were being framed as sexual devices, but again, as these tools of liberation that had the potential to, you know, really fundamentally transform, you know, women's lives and by extension, their relationships. And, you know, Del Williams was really on board with that. She very much bought into that idea. And, you know, when she opened Eve's Garden, it was very much to, you know, get these tools of liberation into the hands of as many women as possible. And she initially started as a mail order operation. And 
I talk a little bit in the book about, you know, this kind of quaintness of her sitting at her kitchen table in her Manhattan apartment and fulfilling <laughs> orders at the end of a long day after she had come home from working as an advertising executive in New York City. So she started, you know, very much out of this mission to provide a service for women and then eventually opened a retail showroom and, a, you know, that morphed into a more conventional retail store. So that's Del Williams' story in terms of coming to this really from, you know, being inspired by what she was seeing around her in the women's liberation movement and really feeling like more women needed to be selling vibrators <laughs> to women, that it would make the world a better place. So I have a really basic question that might be hard to answer on the radio, just with words. Okay. So she didn't have a factory to make these vibrators, right? So I'm trying to think about, like, if I go into my local feminist-friendly sex shop, which is just up the road here, there's a whole range of packages and shapes and sizes and so forth. But this thing that she was selling, where did she get them? Can you tell us where we would get them? And what would they even look like? Is it just like a basic sort of phallic thing, right? Like if you look at the crazy pictures of 19th century vibrators. She was selling what was commonly marketed as massagers or vibrating massagers. So one of the products that you'll see in some of her first early mail order catalogs is the Hitachi Magic Wand, right. which like, might are we talking be familiar. Batteries or plugging in? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard important. because, you know, we are on the radio, and so you can't see a picture, but the Hitachi Magic Wand I bring up because it really has a kind of iconic status mm -hmm. in the pantheon of vibrators. And it's a familiar vibrator to a lot of people. It is, you know, about, I don't know, 12 inches long, white with a kind of bulbous head right. and a couple of on-off switches. They now make them cordless, but at the time it was an electric vibrator that you would plug in and it was you know known for having just a very kind of powerful steady yeah. vibration and for many women it was a revelation because it right. allowed right. them to have orgasms they weren't having very regularly or at all so and the other thing about that is that it's nobody would mistake it for a penis right it has a big head on the top that is round and flat or big ish yes. so it's not clearly not for insertion it's for something it's it's not a phallic, if you're trying to kind of imagine the Hitachi Magic Wand as kind of a phallic looking device, that's not what it looks like at all. I mean, and it was marketed as a massager. So it really, if you look at the early packaging, it's, you know, with someone kind of reaching around and uh -huh. putting it on the back of the shoulder. So historically, it's very, very important for people to realize especially people who have familiarity going into a store like Good Vibrations or Babeland or the Pleasure Chest in LA, for example, where there's just hundreds upon hundreds of products and they're in bright packaging and the colors are bright and they're fanciful and they're cute and there's just, you know, as or many luxurious. possible designs that you can imagine, mm -hmm. that was not what it was like in the early 1970s. And so a lot of, you know, if you look at the early mail order catalogs, they were 
were selling maybe a handful of vibrating massagers that were kind of marketed by mainstream retailers or department stores as straight up kind of massagers for a variety of health benefits. Well, Um, actually, can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges then in terms of the marketing? I mean, it's fascinating to me that Dell Williams was also working in an ad agency at the time and just like how that work must have translated over into her kind of personal mission with the sex toy shop. But can you talk about the challenges of marketing sex toys to women at that time and how Joni and Dell address those challenges? Sure. One of the things I think that's so interesting to me as a scholar about this story and as someone who studies consumer culture is that in 1974, when Dell Williams started Eve's Garden, and then in 1977, when Joni Blank founded Good Vibrations in San Francisco, there was no quote-unquote women's market for sex toys and pornography. Mm. Now, that didn't mean that women weren't able to find them. And, you know, oftentimes that meant that they would go into more conventional adult stores. So it's very interesting kind of to sit someplace in the marketplace where there's not already an established market around you. Um, It poses challenges, but I think for these entrepreneurs, it gave them some freedom because there wasn't a script Mm. necessarily that they were following when it came to marketing or advertising or anything like that. So interestingly enough, a lot of the early marketing for both of these businesses was very much word, word of mouth that women would find out that there's a cute, comfy shop in San Francisco's Mission District that where women were welcome and they could get their vibrators. And so a lot of the early marketing spread through these feminist networks, through word of mouth, through conferences. And some of Dell Williams's first advertisements were classified ads in Ms. Magazine. So they were just like four little lines about feminist vibrator shop and liberating, you know, female sexuality and using the language of feminism very much Mm -hmm. in marketing. Mm -hmm. Dell also did something that I think was really brilliant. She tapped into the network of sex therapists in New York City and kind of made sure that they had mail order catalogs and that they knew about her business and that they could, if they wanted, recommend her business to clients that they were working with and in time incorporated testimonials from people like Dr. Ruth and Uh Sherry Height and other kind of feminist therapists and writers at the time into her marketing material. So I thought that was really interesting to kind of think about where are those places in the culture where conversations are happening amongst women and let me go to those places, right? So Ms. Magazine, sex therapists who might be working with women who are having some challenges around their sexuality. But there were challenges for these businesses. And, you know, there's a very interesting story. If we jump ahead a little bit, in the 1980s, as Good Vibrations in San Francisco started to grow, it had challenges placing advertisements in two places at the same time. Playboy magazine (laughs) wouldn't accept Good Vibrations advertisements, and the sense that Good Vibrations staff had was that Playboy wasn't, didn't know what to make of this feminist business, right? Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't, didn't see this as a fit because it was a kind of woman-run feminist business. (laughs) So Good Vibrations ads were at the time rejected from Playboy. Simultaneously, their ads were rejected from Ms. Magazine. That's interesting. Why were they rejected? Do you know anything about why they were rejected from well, this magazine? Well, complete spe- 
speculation, and you know, this is just kind of folklore that has developed amongst Good Vibrations staff at the time because they were perplexed, right? Like, we can't get our ads in Playboy. <laughs> when they had we been advertising there before, right? right. Yeah. And they're not accepting our ads. So it was curious, you know. I mean, they thought it had to do with the sexual nature of the business, that that just made Ms. Magazine nervous. Now, these were different ads. They weren't heavy with images at all, but they weren't the kind of four-line classified ads of the 1970s either. They were a little bit bigger. They had a little bit of a different presence. And I had a conversation a few years ago with Joni Blank, the founder of Good Vibrations, and we actually talked about this. And she told me this story when she encountered a former editor of Ms. and and brought this up. You know, you could tell it was still a bee in her bonnet. She was still <laughs> missed that, you yeah. know, there was this time in the 80s where these ads were being rejected. And what she was told by someone on the editorial side of magazine publishing for Ms. said, editorial had nothing to do with the marketing and advertising. I don't know why that was the case. So whether it had to do with the particular kind of text and language that was being used that made some Mm. people working in the ad department nervous or whether it had to do with maybe an outline of a Hitachi magic wand that was considered a little too risque. But I do think marketing feminist businesses can be challenging. Marketing a feminist sex-related business can be especially, especially challenging, in part because in a lot of people's minds, feminism and sex don't fit together neatly. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson Studios in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Lynn Camella, author of Vibrator Nation, How Feminist Sex Toy Stores Change the Business of Pleasure. We will return to that conversation in a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Dan Lopez in the studio with us today. Dan is the author of The Show House, which came out from Unnamed Press last year. And Dan is here to give us a book recommendation. Dan, what book will you be recommending? I would like to recommend the new Katherine Heine novel, Standard Deviation. I'm a huge fan of her writing. Her book of short stories, Single Carefree Mellow, came out a few years ago, and I just devoured it. It had a very almost like chiclet feel, but there was a lot of great depth there, and it just it was the perfect sort of summer read. And the novel came out this summer, and it's gotten some press, but I feel like it doesn't get the attention it deserves. As a bookseller, I'm always pushing it on people. I love it. It starts in the middle of this marriage that's been going on for a while. It's the second marriage for the narrator. He's married to a much younger woman who's kind of zany and weird. And she'll do things like invite the doorman to just stay in their spare bedroom because he's getting his house fumigated, like that kind of thing. Oh, there's good reason. Yeah. It feels almost like there's no plot, which is rare because I normally love books with plots. But it just builds slowly over time. And by the end, you realize that what's going on here is a really great examination of how relationships are built over time and how that that's like maybe the point of life is that it's just kind of what you have to do to make it through the long stretch with a person. Interesting. And so in your reading of this book, what is it that one has to do to build a relationship over time? Just sort of survive those sure. years? Or... Is there something more more specific that the book is telling us? It seems like there's a lot of 
like strategic lying that goes on in the book. <laughs> um, like the, that sounds the, right. Yeah. Like the book, it covers the gamut. There's infidelity. There's like dealing with like children. They have a son and the son has like Asperger's. And so like there's that kind of thing that goes on there. But a lot of it just comes down to what you choose to share and then what you choose to kind of overlook with each other and how at the end of the day, it's just kind of maybe almost routine like it sounds super depressing and like super like oh well you know life is there's no magic in it but actually the book is hilarious in just the zany way presents these everyday vignettes that kind of build up over time it's like yeah this is life like life is the mundane and life is the crazy fun stuff too that sounds great can you tell us the title of the book again and the author yeah it's Catherine heine and the book is called standard deviation Thank you so much, Dan. We've been speaking with Dan Lopez, author of The Show House. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Lynn Kamala, author of Vibrator Nation, How Feminist Sex Toy Stores Change the Business of Pleasure. charting such a nice juxtaposition about how radical what these women was trying to do was because the place where it was appropriate to talk about sex wasn't appropriate to talk about politics or women. And the place that it was appropriate to talk about women and politics didn't understand how to incorporate sex or at least their marketing department didn't. And that juxtaposition really is a testament to how important your project is. Yeah, I think it is. It's it's such a fascinating juxtaposition for sure and you know marks a marks a i think moment moment in time that you know i, I think there's still tension in yeah. in in that you know and and you know i've i've kind of been quietly observing even the the kind of reception and the pickup of the book and it's been very very interesting for me to note for example you know um, which media outlets you know have just been clamoring to kind of write about the book and to talk to me about it and which ones surprisingly I haven't heard much from Mm. and so I think I think it's just been interesting that you know some of the places that I thought would be really eager to write about the book have you know hung back or have decided not to cover it but outlets like the Atlantic and Rolling Stone and you know even talking with you on the radio which is in Cosmo you know talking with you on the radio is you know delightful I'm I'm thrilled (laughs) so it's I, I, I think that tension right about where is the appropriate place for conversations around sexuality to happen, you know, for those conversations to happen is still something that a lot of media outlets think about. And I think it becomes more vexing to them when you layer that with politics and feminism, you know, like I think it can confuse editors and producers about where does that fit with kind of how we see ourselves as, you know, uh, a media entity, whether it's the editorial side or the advertising advertising side. Absolutely. So I have I have a bunch of further questions about this that are maybe more um, nerdy than we totally want to get into. But um, I'm curious also not only how it fits in the media landscape, but in the landscape of scholarship. So I mentioned a few minutes ago the earlier book about the history of vibrators, um, which the technology of orgasm, when did that come out? In the late 90s, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. So and um, I would recommend it to readers. It's a great history of this funny moment. And you can correct me if I'm missing something where 
it was very normal for women to go and have their doctor bring them to orgasm, and that was not seen as sexual. It was a part of medical treatment. Um, and the shifting moment in our awareness, or, or just the way we think about women's bodily experience. And so the mm-hmm. book is great, but one of the other things that I remember most vividly about reading that book when it came out is the introduction. And the historian who wrote that book, and she was in a history department, or she might have actually not been employed when the book came out, talked about how hard it was to get historians to listen to her and being in academic environments and being like, look, this is this really important part in women's medical history and the history of women's sexuality and the history of gender and the very masculine discipline of history just being scoffing, but also being outraged and, you know, like being appalled. And her, the I remember reading that introduction and being like, oh, my God, you poor woman, you have been through the wars. So I'm really yeah. curious about what it was like for you to do this project, which, you know, like we could talk, we've been talking for almost half an hour and we haven't even gotten to the question of like, oh, well, how did you convince somebody that this was a reasonable thing to do? So that's one marker of how things have changed in just you know, 30 years, but I'm curious how you feel like this fits into what's appropriate in universities and around undergraduates mm-hmm. and so forth. Oh, boy, that's <laughs> a good question. I mean, I could, we could do a whole show on this, right? I mean, literally, we yeah. could have, you know, a whole, you know, hour devoted to the the kind of challenges and academic reception around um sexuality scholarship and, uh-huh. and research. And I, yeah. and I think it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I have definitely, I, I have to say I have not, uh, fortunately, um, kind of, ha- I didn't experience um, all the challenges that Rachel Maines experienced. And, and, you know, there's been a lot of changes for sure since the late 1990s. I mean, I I read Rachel's book when I was writing my PhD dissertation on Mm -hmm. the history of feminist sex toy shops. So her work was really influential and important for me to see that. And that that book was like very groundbreaking, right? I mean, a book called The Technology of the Orgasm or The Technology of Orgasm. And, and, you know, and, and I think, part of the challenge was not just the fields, like kind of, you know, working within history, but working kind of like the history of technology, right? right? Like, you know, technology, cars and (laughs) manufacturing. And here comes this woman saying, I'm going to talk about um, a vibrator as a form of technology. And I can imagine, I can just imagine just the responses that she must have received um, among colleagues at academic conferences, at dinner parties. Yeah. And, um, you know, I certainly experienced some of that. Again, I, I don't think probably to the degree that she did, but certainly when I began this research, again, graduate student seminar paper at the end of the 90s, dissertation in the early 2000s, and then a decade more of research to kind of trace the shifts of this rapidly evolving sex toy industry, you know, I certainly had my fair share of conversations with people who just 
at least early on, could not wrap their heads around what I was yeah. doing, right? Yeah. Um, like, wait, sex shops, feminist right. sex shops, what's the scholarly right. significance, the historical value? So, and, and even if they didn't say anything, I mean, you could read their body language. Yeah. You mm-hmm. could see their eyebrows arch. Which yeah. is, you we should also say, kind of flinch, that's you know? what happens in the academy, I think, whenever you directly address a question about sex. Like when it's not something that you're like mapping on to something else or it's a suggested theme. It's like when you're actually looking at bodies and sex, there is always, it seems to me, this like, like whether it's queer sex, whether it's feminist sex, whatever, that there is an instant kind of like, well, there's something perverse about that. Well, I think it's interesting. I'd be interested in your perspective, Lynn. I mean, I think that's someplace where there's such a real divide between some fields like gender studies or English where that's completely, is it not about sex? How strange, you know, like I feel like <laughs> mm-hmm. sex is so at the forefront. Whereas, Though you'd still be surprised well, sometimes. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wrote but my it undergraduate honors thesis in the mid-90s about feminist erotica, and it was like a little eyebrow raising, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, like it was that 90s moment is so... So interesting, right? Like I remember being an undergrad at the University of Iowa, you know, so not some urban center in the mid 90s. Uh We were all reading Judith Butler and we're like, sex is performative. And like Susie Bright was like my (laughs) hero. And this is like amazing, you know. And so like there was a huge amount of like being a feminist for me in Iowa in the 90s was about being pro-sex. We felt very much responsive to the, you know, like anti-Andrea Dworkin Yeah. Oh, but we were I really, love that story. Yeah, like we it. were totally in that moment and we would like be like, yeah, let's go buy a vibrator. But then you had to go to the adult marketplace, which was this super dodgy place, CD, like de- literally yeah. down by the tracks. And they were like, yeah. you know, it was like sticky in there. Right? <laughs> you know? And we felt like a real act of liberation to go to those stores. Um, but they were not for us, although we were there. Like right. we, like yeah. hordes of drunk girls, like being like, it's time to get our vibrators. And then, Three years later, I'd moved to Chicago, and then Early to Bed opened, which was the what, the first Chicago feminist mm. sex store, I think. Yes, I love Early to Bed. Yeah. I love that shop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I haven't been there in a long time. but So it was interesting to watch. For my personal experience of this story is that the universities were really l- creating this space for people who felt like we deserved that. And then the stores were, sh- you know, I knew about Good Vibrations, but that was in San Francisco. Like, I actually made a trip once, like, particularly for the purpose of like, I'm going to go to good vibrations, like a feminist, you know. Um, But there wasn't any resource around. And then in the early 2000s, that started to change. Yeah. Well, I love the story that you just narrated, because I think it goes through all of these really fascinating moments of like being an undergraduate, coming into a kind of feminist and, you know, kind of sex positive consciousness and, you know, marching into the more conventional adult store and buying your liberators as an act of liberation and resistance. And then discovering an actual feminist shop in Chicago and then making this pilgrimage. I mean, it's a wonderful kind of narrative and story. And I mean, I think you point to something that's really, really interesting. And that is that for many young people, um, young women, but not only young women, I mean, you know, uh, 
those those years in college can be so eye-opening and mm-hmm. so formative mm-hmm. when it comes to sense of yourself, whether that's as a gendered person, a racialized person, someone who is actually located in a social class, you right. know, standing, yeah. um, but especially, especially as a sexual being. And so on the one hand, you have, um, you know, young people who, who are in some instances having their minds really blown around <laughs> kind of encountering ideas about sex in their bodies that are transformative to how they think of themselves and others and the world. Yet, the greater academy is, you know, kind of not always um, receptive to that kind of work, which can be so powerful and transformative. So so there is, um, you know, I have to say that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm now, you know, quite, fortunately and happily a tenured, um, you know, professor. And so I've, you know, kind of been in kind of academic institutions doing work on gender and sexuality long enough to kind of see Mm. changes happen in the way that, you know, certain kinds of research is received. But, you know, it's hard. I mean, I don't want to downplay that fact. I mean, I feel very fortunate that, you know, you know, I ended up at a university in Las Vegas of all places, right? And so, you know, I can't be naive about kind of the fact that even though I can talk about how I think Las Vegas is, you know, um, kind of sexually conservative in certain ways around, you know, it's marketing around sex and whatnot. I mean, it, it's not a perfect place by any means, but I have colleagues that have written books on the history of the brothel industry and who, you mm-hmm. know, write about mm-hmm. sex education and sex therapy. And so there is, you know, it, I wasn't walking in as a stranger in a strange land. Like yeah. there was a language that colleagues had to place my work. But it's also worth noting my PhD is in communication right, and was, media yeah. studies. So it's worth And you're also in a gender noting, studies department. And right. I'm in a gender studies department. And I think that's significant. I think, you know, it, it's worth noting that even those of us who have been trained in more traditional disciplines like, you know, history or communication and media studies or sociology, um, sometimes by default, we find ourselves in, you know, gender studies or gender and sexuality studies programs, because those are the disciplines that um, are most receptive to the type of work that we're doing, right? And so I think it's always, it's, it can be a struggle for many of us who work in, in these fields to kind of build these bridges between more traditional disciplines and the work that we do that sometimes gets sequestered into these disciplines with much um, broader histories of studying marginalized people, communities, spaces, phenomena. You know, so we're always trying to kind of translate our work to, you know, uh, other disciplines. And and I think most of us, we've had to develop skills in that kind of mm-hmm. translation, and, and many of us are quite good at it, like being able to straddle multiple, you know, <laughs> worlds, um, disciplinary worlds. But also, you know, I work really hard to make sure that my academic research is legible to non-academics, you know, and I wrote that book, this book, Vibrator Nation, in part, not wanting it to be overly academic or overly jargony. I wanted... Yeah, you know, it is very who, accessible. The writing is very much like a kind of a... a like a pop cultural history. I mean, it it reads well, like like a a solid like New Yorker piece. 
Well, thank you for saying that. That I worked really hard, um, and that was my goal to try to achieve, you know, both, you know, how to take something that was very academically academic and rigorously researched and try to package it in a way that could still invite readers, you know, into the, into the book. And, and, you know, I try to tell people like, just because it says Duke University Press on the the back, don't let that intimidate you. It really, you know, I, I want people who have just a general interest in gender and sexuality and consumer culture to feel like they can get something out of the book or even people in the adult industry that run these stores. I want them to feel like they can get something out of the book. Right. So, uh, Lynn, as we um, kind of wrap up here, I just wanted to ask you, you know, if we can move from like the academic to like the mainstream culture um, to talk about kind of what about today, right? How has like has increased sexual openness, um, not only around just women's sexuality, but also around like the public acceptability of vibrators and sex toys in general, to the extent that that has happened. But like you cite, for example, um, how it appears the rabbit was uh, got <laughs> got a huge boost in sales because of it appearing on Sex in the City, yeah. and um, uh-huh. you know shows like Girls, for example, have been very open and progressive. I think in many ways about an unapologetic view of female sexual desire for either a sexual relationship or a sexual encounter, you know? So do you think that increased kind of sexual openness in the culture more generally has ushered in the kind of changes that Williams and Blank were looking for when they started these kind of activist movement of the feminist sex toy store? And I want to add something else too, which is how do you think that the vibrator history fits in both this increased openness on the one hand and yet on the other hand, over the last 10 years, particularly, um, and even this week, incredibly intensifying regulation of reproductive rights, sexuality, etc. So it seems to me those two things are happening simultaneously, of course, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's how ideology works. But I'm curious how you see the Mm -hmm. vibrator fitting in the middle of those two things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that is interesting, important is, you know, what both of you point to as is a kind of um, unevenness, right? Like on the one hand, looking back at the early 1970s, we can certainly make the case that we're in a very different moment in 2017. You know, it really, you know, uh, I can imagine that when Betty Dodson stood on stage at the 1973 Now Conference on Women's Sexuality, she probably wasn't thinking ahead 40 years to a moment where there would be a show like Grace and Frankie, <laughs> these, you know, 70-year-old women who are starting a vibrator company. Right. Um, you know, like it, it probably would have just not ever, ever occurred to her that we would eventually get to a cultural moment where these things weren't just being talked about, but they were, you know, being written into a script as a recurring storyline throughout, you know, the latest season of, of, um, Grace and Frankie. So, so there's been certain shifts around kind of cultural openness, particularly when it comes to sex toys. You know, it's hard to pick up a women's magazine or a men's magazine and not see some kind of article related to the latest gadget or related to top 10, you know, bestseller selling <laughs> toys. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's much more kind of discussions of, of sex toys in particular are um, far more normalized right. and part of the cult- cultural conversation and they certainly were 40 years ago, even 30 years ago. And, and, you know, I do think that these feminist sex toy businesses have played a role in 
those shifting cultural conversations because they've made open conversations around sex and sexuality such a central part of their business missions, right? Like, yes, you can come into our store and buy a vibrator, but you can also just come in and ask us a question that you've never dreamt of asking anybody else. And we will do our best to give you the most accurate information we have, you know, to answer that, whether it's about, you know, a sexual position or sexual anatomy, physiology, and so on. So I think these businesses have helped move kind of conversations, you know, around sex more into the cultural mainstream. But I think the unevenness, you know, I, 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 we, we certainly cannot be kind of, you know, pumping our fists in the air and kind of declaring kind of, you know, we have arrived in a sexually liberated moment because that is far, far from the case. And it's not right. just when it comes yeah. to, you know, issues of, of, you know, reproductive justice and, you know, reproductive health. But, you know, I, I have to go back to the current state of school-based sex ed in the U.S., which is abysmal. Yeah. You know, it's so uneven. It's so hit or miss. I've talked to young people, you know, as a college professor, I, I work with young people who are 18, 19, 20, 21, and I hear their stories sometimes about just what they got out of, you know, um, school-based sex ed, if they even had it. Right. And, you know, most it's, it's horror stories, you know, so we have kind of generations of young people that have grown up into these, you know, very sexually illiterate adults who are desperate, you know, like, and I think when it comes to sex, I think adults are very aware of what they don't know when it comes mm. to sex. I, I think they're very aware of sexual ignorance oftentimes. And, and so I think, you know, we, we have, have seen kind of young people grow up into adults aware of what they don't know and not quite sure where in the culture they can turn to fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where some of these businesses really, really have played a key cultural role is they have made it part of their mission to provide adult sexuality education and to do so in frank, informative, and, you know, um, ways that will not embarrass the person who's asking questions. It's not uncommon for those questions to be really, really basic. Like, I'm not quite sure what a clitoris is or how to find it. <laughs> okay, well, like that... we, we will have to end it, unfortunately, on that note, um, or fortunately. So we've been speaking with Lynn Comella, the author of the recently published book from Duke University Press, Vibrator Nation, How Feminist Sex Toy Stores Change the Business of Pleasure. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Lynn. Thank you so oh, much. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you, Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. <laughs>